You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. They come from the unknown, and they're here now, hiding, waiting to strike. You can feel their presence all around you. Never before have you come this close to the edge of terror. Never before have you faced anything so strange and sinister, so bizarre and unnerving. Never until now. David Cronenberg's The Brood. Are you ready for me, Frank? I seem to be a very special person now. I'm in the middle of a strange adventure. I want to go with you wherever you go. Do you? Yes. Then look! The Brood. You can run. You can hide and hope they won't find you. But you won't escape. Once unleashed, The Brood will destroy anyone who gets in their way. David Cronenberg's Ultimate Experience in Inner Terror, starring Oliver Reed and Samantha Egar. The Brood, they're waiting for you. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Mark Begley. You're not looking at me, Mike. Also back in the booth is Ms. Sam Deegan. <laughs> Hello. On this special episode of The Projection Booth, we are looking at David Cronenberg's The Brood. This is the second part of a two-part conversation about Cronenberg's early features. You can hear the first part via Mark's podcast, Wake Up Heavy. It's kind of like when Daredevil would show up in Spider-Man and make a reference to something that happened in his own comic. So picture a little asterisk next to our conversation that says, See Wake Up Heavy, Season 4, Episode 3. The Brood is the story of the Carveth family and how the sins of the past revisit the children of the next generation. Frank Carveth, played by Art Hindle, and his wife Nola, played by Samantha Egger, have separated. She's under the care of Dr. Hal Raglan, played by Oliver Reed. He's the head of the Soma Free Clinic and has mastered the art of psychoplasmics where negative thoughts and feelings are manifested physically. These come in the form of rashes or lesions, or in the case of Nola, a group of odd creatures who go on murderous rampages whenever her ire is raised. 
We will continue to spoil the film. I think I just ruined one of the big twists. So if you haven't seen the film, definitely check it out and come back after you have. Sam, when was the first time you saw The Brood, and what did you think? The first time I saw it, I want to say I was probably about 15 or 16, and I had just started watching Cronenberg's films, and... The Brood is one that I feel like I spend a lot of time defending, which is something that we can talk about more into the episode. But it's always been a weird one for me because it's not one of my favorite Cronenberg films, but it's also, and I don't want to like get too heavy on this episode, but it's like I grew up in a situation where I had a very abusive mother and So I think it's a little like too on the nose for me, which is, I think it's a great film. It's just not one that I enjoy watching a lot. Yeah, it's not really too much of a kick back, relax and enjoy it kind of a movie, is it? It's not fun. No. And Mark, how about you? Well, I won't go back over the whole Cronenberg history thing. People can listen to the Shivers episode if they want to hear all that. But in reference to that, I don't think that this is one that I watched back then after kind of rediscovering or discovering his earlier films after seeing The Fly. I honestly don't recall seeing it prior to maybe between 2010, 2015. I kept little notes when I would watch movies and I I referenced it not being one of my favorites at that time. So that kind of makes me think, okay, I saw it at some point earlier. But anyway, it's a more recent film and it has not been one of my favorites either of his until recently watching it four or five times in the last three or four months and originally didn't care for it all that much because it wasn't as weird quote-unquote, as Shivers or Rabbit. It didn't have the strange mix of of sex and death and weird creatures and body transformations um, until maybe the last five or so minutes. But I've really grown to like it a lot more after viewing it so many times over the last three or four months. Yeah, I don't know if I necessarily like this film, but I definitely respect this film. I appreciate what it's doing, what it's saying, But kind of like you, Sam, it's not one that I'm just going to kick back and relax and watch. It's not like a Videodrome or The Fly or Scanners where it's just like, okay, I can put this on and have a good time with this movie. The Brood is, to use your word, Sam, it's heavy. It's a heavy film. And what it's dealing with is not very pleasant. Again, I also talked about when I saw stuff when it came to Cronenberg's work on Mark's episode, this was one of those where it just kind of got lumped in with Shivers and Rabbit, and I just watched all three like very close succession, so I don't know exactly when I saw this sometime, gosh, in the mid-early 2000s kind of thing, and it didn't necessarily leave that much of a mark on me the first time, but then when I watched it again, preparing for this show, I can really appreciate this movie, and I can appreciate – it does stir up a lot of bad things, and I can really see where this was created in a bad period of Cronenberg's life. This was his divorce story. This was his his uh, tale of what was going on with him and his wife. And there's a book that we read for this episode by Stephen Bissett, and uh, you'll hear from him later on. He compares 
the brew to possession. And I can see that comparison in a lot of ways because of that anger and confusion and betrayal that our male protagonist feels when it comes to the female protagonist. Yeah, I always think about the brood and possession as sort of a unit in a weird sense. And I overall prefer possession, but they're both films that I've spent a lot of time defending because I've seen all of these, both seen and heard all of these interpretations where people seem to think that both are really misogynistic and they're sympathetic towards the male protagonist and they just sort of paint these women as terrible in a really unfair way. And it makes me crazy because part of why I love possession and why I respect the brood so much is that I found them to feel, I mean, you know, the, the sort of science fiction fantasy elements aside, I found them to feel emotionally very accurate And so it's this weird thing where it's like, I, you know, it's someone's opinion. It's their interpretation. I don't want to, I can't tell anyone they're wrong. Like, I'm sure there are people who watched The Brood and were really uncomfortable about the ending. But at the same time, I think there's this tendency to downplay or ignore abuse when it comes from a woman, especially when it comes from a mother. And I think both Possession and The Brood sort of nail that while at the same time the husbands are such bitches they're not sympathetic i don't think let's not forget the other marital drama of 1979 kramer versus kramer and how yes <laughs> <laughs> you know it's the same kind of deal i mean i say that as a joke but it's the same kind of deal where the dad is the savior of the kid and the mom is painted not necessarily as evil in kramer versus kramer but definitely as someone who has abandoned their child and then makes, quote-unquote, the right decision at the end of the film. My parents took me to see Kramer vs. Kramer at the theater. (laughs) If it came out in 79, I was seven years old? Holy shit. What the fuck were they doing? Were they trying to tell you something? Maybe. (laughs) They're preparing me for something that would happen after I was, like, 25, 26, so... It pretty much prepared me for real life, I guess. Gosh. Yeah, that's fucked up to think that that was, let's go out to the show and see this. At least we didn't go see Ordinary People as like a double feature. They could have taken you to see (laughs) The Brood, so it was the same year. I can see why people would get upset about this movie, and I guess I could see the interpretation of the man as the put-upon one. I mean, Art Hindle is our protagonist, if there is a protagonist in this film. But yeah, I don't see him as being heroic, necessarily. He seems more acted upon than an actor. He only really does one thing in the movie, which is strangle his wife towards the end. And the rest of the time... He's a little like an investigator. A super inept investigator. (laughs) You would think that as soon as you saw those little creatures, that you would make a much bigger deal about it. And especially, like, the hospital knows about this. There has been an autopsy that is done on one of these creatures. I would involve many more people than just my father-in-law. But everybody in this movie, maybe with the exception of Cindy Hines, the little girl, is to blame. And that's the thing in this is that you are getting interpretations of all of this stuff and you don't necessarily know what the truth is. Like you hear from 
Nola during the the sessions that she has with Oliver Reed. And then you hear about her from her husband, from her mother, from her father. And it doesn't really feel like we ever get the truth of what happened to her in her childhood. And we just seem to get interpretations of what that might be. That's part of what makes it feel so accurate to me is that on the one hand, you have this issue of memory being warped with time where one person may feel very differently about a particular experience and it may stand out more strongly in their brain and become a bigger deal than it was to someone else who participated in the event. And I think he does such a great job of that. But I also think in the case of failing relationships and especially in the case of child abuse, everyone is to blame. And movies or narratives that sort of present it as here's this one person and everyone else just didn't know, it's like, that's some bullshit. One of the things I like so much about his films that I think sometimes makes other film writers and critics call them cold emotionally is this sense that everyone is sort of responsible or unlikable. And I'm sure you guys talked about this on the other episode, but especially in the first half of his career, in a lot of those early films, he has these male characters who for another director, maybe would be the protagonist, but they just, it's like they're to blame because they just fucking don't do anything (laughs) and you want to throttle them. Yeah. That did come up the ineffective male hero and that came up in the audio commentary and i guess it's a peculiarly canadian thing to have the hero who's not really a hero who kind of mucks about the whole time and usually doesn't solve anything at the end of the film and i art handle definitely plays that role in the film and william beard notes through his commentary how often Art Hindle turns away when he's confronted with any of the negative things that are he's presented with when he finds the teacher after the broodlets or broodlings murder her, he turns away. When he finds his father-in-law, he turns away. Uh, when he sees the bruises on Candy's back, he turns away. And so I guess, and it's nice to hear that, that that was of a Canadian style the ineffectual hero was part of the Canadian cinema at the time in the 70s and 80s. The way that it offers such a distinctive commentary on masculinity that I think is a little bit different than what we traditionally see, especially in North American horror movies. It just makes me think so much about that stupid boyfriend in in Rabbit who he just like cannot get it together. And Mike and I talked about that as far as Paul Hampton is concerned in Shivers as well. And even I can never remember the character's name in Scanners, although I guess he he just seems more of a blank slate than anything, uh, not maybe necessarily ineffectual. But that ambiguity of who's the hero and who's the villain in the film is what pushed me to like it a little bit more and thinking, okay, when I started to pay attention to what everybody was saying about Nola's childhood, that's when I started thinking, oh, wait a minute, is she even telling the truth? Uh, Everybody has a different story about this. And it almost seems like she was able as a young kid already to manifest her rage 
somatically. And, and that kind of turned the movie up a little bit more for me when I finally paid attention to all the dialogue and what was actually happening to think, oh, okay, this is a little bit maybe more layered than I originally thought. It's a really important choice that Art Hindle's character, and I don't, I've never noticed this before, but the entire time that I was re-watching it earlier today, is it just me or does he look like Peter Dinklage? I don't know why. He just reminds me so much. Of me. They have the same nose, maybe. But it would be a radically different film if you had the husband as somebody who... If you had Art Hindle and Oliver Reed switch places and Oliver Reed played the husband, it would be a deeply misogynistic film. Like, if he's somebody who's really physical and aggressive it would come off in such a different way than if you just have this sort of like passive guy who doesn't know what to do and he's just kind of fumbling along. But the ambiguities around her story, that's part of what makes me a little uncomfortable about the film because people are so quick to dismiss allegations of abuse and to ignore abuse victims. The scene with the grandmother... Candy basically asks her what happened. And if the grandmother actually was an abuser, there's no way she would be like, oh, yeah, I used to beat your mom all the time. It was great. So like, of course, she denies it. But I've seen other interpretations where people talk about how they think she's just crazy and she wasn't abused at all. And that is what makes me I don't know if it's that interpretation makes me uncomfortable. The fact that it's built into the film. I don't know. I just I really don't like it. That's right. I remember this picture. Your grandpa Barton took this picture. Tell me the rest of the story that goes with the picture. Why was mommy in the hospital so much? Well, someday she would wake up and she would be covered with big, ugly bumps. The doctors were very worried because they could never find out what those bumps all over her skin really were. Well, there was obviously something wrong between Nola's mom and dad, since they are divorced. Not to cast aspersions on the mom or the dad whose fault it was. People get divorced. I've been divorced. My folks got divorced. Things happen. But obviously something happened, and Nola was affected somehow by this. And again, I'm not trying to lay blame at anybody's feet because we don't get a whole lot of the parents in the movie. But when we do see the dad, again, very ineffectual character, he seems to be a drinker. The mom seems to be a drinker. You know, her there in the afternoon with this big tumbler of, of whatever and just like, oh, let me freshen my drink, honey, before, you know. And also, this is a different time. So me here in 2020 looking at this going, oh, wow, she's day drinking. That's really not a very good thing. In 1979, she probably had a wet bar in her house. You know, things have definitely changed over the years as far as our attitudes toward alcohol. But she seems like a lush. It seems like the dad was a lush. So who knows what went on in that house for Nola? The thing that I probably respect or enjoy about the film the most is it's almost like he's saying it doesn't matter what happened. What matters is that pain was inflicted on this child and she grew up into an adult who never dealt with or resolved that trauma. And that lingering trauma is going to 
lead to other monstrous things and it will continue into a whole other generation. And that's what I think is so well done about this film. I'm really curious if I know anybody that didn't undergo trauma when they were younger. <laughs> and especially now you look at this and you see all the shit that Candace goes through. I mean, the laugh line is imagine how much money she's going to have to pay in therapy because she is just going to be completely traumatized. The divorce of her parents, the splitting apart of her family, it was already bad enough. And now she's seeing her grandmother's corpse. She sees her teacher being completely brained. All of these horrible things are happening. She's being walked from school by these two creatures that kind of look like her, but kind of don't at the same time. These monstrous versions of her. Her therapy bill is going to be through the roof. It's so frustrating. The first time you watch this film, there's the scene where he's giving her a bath and he sees the bruises all over her back. And then he goes and talks to Raglan and basically says, my kid can't come here anymore. She's being abused. And Raglan, Raglan basically like threatens legal action. And you're just like, oh, where is this going? <laughs> it's, it's a lot. But there's also, and I think I get why so many people, you know, obviously not just me and that other author find that comparison to Possession because there are similar scenes in Possession where there are these sort of like intimate father child moments where you see a father as a parent, which I feel like is something that you don't see very often in late seventies or early eighties films. Dad is usually this sort of remote, more remote figure who goes to work and makes money. Not the one who gives you a bath and helps you get dressed for school. And so that's one of my favorite things about this is that it just feels a little more nuanced in the way that it shows family dynamics. Well, if you like that, there's a whole toothbrushing scene in Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> That's pretty much the only thing I remember. I was going to bring Kramer versus Kramer up again, but decided not to. It's inevitable. You will learn to make French toast correctly. Or else. This movie also plays in this thing that I love so much. I sound like a broken record sometimes when I try to impress upon the listeners how fucked up the 1970s were. This opening of this film, where you have Raglan, the Oliver Reed character, oh speaking <laughs> to one of his patients, and this whole therapy session that's going on, this idea of psychoplasmics. There are things that are like this, like when you get really super stressed out, you might stress eat, or you might break out in acne, or your back might start to bother you. There are so many things where there are physical manifestations of inner stresses, but this takes it to the extreme, where he is having this session with a patient in front of an audience, which is really weird, and then super creepy, and this whole, like, daddy thing and the sissification and all of it. Oh, it's really bad. You're not looking at me, Mike. You're not looking at me in the eyes. That's weak. Only weak people do that. I could look you in the eye if, if I wanted to, Daddy. I, I just I just don't want to look you in the eye. I guess you're just a weak person. Hmm? Must have got that from your mother. It probably would have been better for you to have been born a girl and we could have named you Michelle. You see, weakness is more acceptable in a girl, Michelle. Oh. oh, I'm sorry. I mean, Mike. I keep forgetting. Wait a minute. Why did I call you Michelle all the time? 
then I wouldn't have to be so goddamn fucking ashamed of you and your weaknesses. I could just think of you as a girl all the time, couldn't I? By your frocks and your dresses and your frilly hats and your frilly scarves, and you could be, you could be daddy's little girl. I wouldn't have to be so fucking ashamed of being seen with you in public, would I, eh? This is not out of the norm, out of the realm of possibility of 1970s psychotherapy. I mean, there were so many movements in the 1970s, things that actually caused people to die. This whole idea of attachment therapy and this this girl that died because of that. There was EST, there was primal scream therapy, there are all of these different therapy things, and that played right in with all of those like self-help things that were going on. It was just this weird spectrum of like trying to improve yourself, looking for a spiritual something to fill the spiritual void inside of you. So some people turn to crystals, some people turn to space aliens, some people turn to, you know, the Loch Ness monster. It was just this whole like weird world of people just searching for answers in the 70s and this kind of thing plays perfectly in it and again this kind of goes along with what was really happening in Cronenberg's world which is where his wife wanted to take his daughter and move to a commune in California some people called it a cult could have been a cult I mean this was also the era of Jim Jones the Moonies you know all of these different new religions and things and people just trying it out and seeing what works and a lot of bad shit went down. Well, and the super crazy thing is so much of that. I feel like it's hard for younger listeners maybe to understand how much people did not take psychiatry seriously. And they thought it was not science and just like some made up bullshit And I mean, I feel like it's only really been the last 20 or 30 years that it's more accepted for people to be on medication and even to go to therapy. But the thing that's even worse about it is that these experimental therapies most of the time were not organized or overseen in any way by licensed psychiatrists or by medical professionals at all. They were just, to your point, people who were trying to become sort of cult gurus or my actual least favorite, people with PhDs in unrelated fields who call themselves doctor and maybe write some bullshit book where they've like taken advantage of a patient and they spin the story and then they become some kind of mental health figure all because people are gullible. The script was included with with the rest of the material on the Dropbox file, and I didn't have enough time to read through it, but I did kind of page through and didn't see too many differences other than that opening scene where, along with the welts and lesions, Mike actually starts to manifest breasts, taking the sissification thing and uh, maybe I should call you Michelle and buy you a dress I was like, wow, I'm kind of really glad that that didn't get filmed. I'm sure it had more to do with, you know, not being able to get the special effects right or something. But um, that would have really played that hand hard and, and early in the film. Oliver Reed is so great. I mean, he's one of my favorite actors, but he is so great in this film because Cronenberg, the first half of his career, if not more, has so many of these manipulative doctors who are taking advantage of people to sort of further their own experiments. And I think Raglan is one of the most 
dynamic examples of that. And I think it's because he's played by Oliver Reed. Like Oliver Reed is just incapable of being the sort of flat, cold figure that you see in other films like Shivers and Rabid. He's like always at 11, especially in the beginning. He's at 11, but he's not raising his voice, which makes him even more intense. Just that cold stare that he has. And I was watching this again earlier today and watching when people blink. Oliver Reed doesn't blink very often. <laughs> and Samantha Egger doesn't seem to blink at all. And just him, he is so intense and he just is keeping his voice at that very same level. And I'm just like, holy shit, this guy, like, it feels like he could break you in two with his pinky. When Ken Russell was directing him in things, they worked together so often that they developed kind of this shorthand for what Russell wanted Reed to do in a particular scene. And (laughs) it's broken down into Moody 1, Moody 2, and Moody 3. And Moody 1 is normal. Moody 3 is shouting and fucking terrifying. He does Moody 3 a lot in The Devils. And Moody 2 is what we're seeing here, where... He's absolutely terrifying, but he's almost like like a snake or a reptile or something. It's like he he does that sort of and I, I know that this is Cronenberg's direction and it's on purpose, but he does that sort of voice that adults would sometimes do when you're a kid and they didn't want to shout at you, but it's the sort of I'm very disappointed. <laughs> like he he does that so well in this. It's uh it's so intense. I've been practicing that voice with my daughter for the past 13 years. Talking about the doctor characters and the doctor and shivers, he's dead within the first five minutes. And then you look at the doctor. If you want to call Brian Oblivion, the doctor in say Videodrome, sometimes I think that Brian Oblivion is the bad guy. And other times he seems like he's being manipulated as well. It doesn't seem like he's necessarily behind the scenes. I mean, you know, he's dead after a little bit as well. I think he speaks to us from beyond the grave. So I agree with you that there are these very manipulative doctors. You know, the guy in Shivers was definitely like, this is what I want to do. Like, hey, yeah, sure. We'll have these parasites and it'll help you out. Like, well, it'll uh, replace your kidney. But actually what I want to do is create a parasite that's going to make you into a sex starved uh, maniac. So, you know, sorry about that. <laughs> Same difference, right? Yeah. <laughs> Raglan, the Oliver Reed character here, he's getting these people to do what he wants, though it is very cultish. And I like that we have this kind of anti-cult thing going on. There's the one guy, the one character actor is just fucking incredible. He shows up in this, he shows up in Scanners. And we've got that going on. This whole thing of Samantha Agar, the Nola character, she is the successful experiment. He feels like he's the mad doctor working on all of these people. And she's the one person who has really successfully manifested psychoplasmic. She has managed to really come out with all of her rage and put it into these new things. And they're not lesions. They're not breasts. They're not bruises. They are actual living beings that she is giving birth to outside of herself that she's kind of kept maybe under lock and key in this little cabin. And she never really leaves that place the entire length of the film. She's the Frankenstein monster down in the cellar that he is keeping there because she's almost too much of an exceptional specimen. It's just so fucked up. And it's interesting if you compare this to something like the exorcist or Carrie, 
where you have these younger female characters who are also physically manifesting trauma, but it's almost like Cronenberg said, you know what? I could have it be sort of a possession story or some sort of supernatural thing, or I could just make it as completely insane as possible. (laughs) And that's what he did instead. You were referencing Robert Silverman, I believe is the character actor's name. You know, we talked about Joe Silver on the the Shivers episode, and he kind of passed the torch to Robert Silverman and Rabbit because they were both in that briefly. But I absolutely love his line deliveries throughout his few scenes that he has. I mean, he's great in Scanners and Naked Lunch, which I haven't watched in years, but I do remember his face in that one. But he, it's either him or Mike that refers, I think it's Mike, that refers to Nola as the Queen Bee. And uh, that goes to your point about her being kind of the success story of, of Psychoplasmics. And that manifestation, it seems like if maybe the Robert Silverman character's sarcoma had turned into something else, uh, maybe he would have been one of the success stories as well. If it had been uh, some kind of creature or maybe a positive growth on your body, whatever that could possibly be. So there's this spite with him and then that ends up transferring to Mike when they all get kicked out of the, the Soma Free Clinic. And all of that is related to Oliver Reed as the daddy, the father figure for Nola, Mike, and probably had been for Robert Silverman's character. Jan Hartog is his name. It took me so long to realize what he was talking about because the Robert Silverman character is so intense. I'm watching him more than I'm listening to what he's saying. And I am just watching that body language and all that. And it took me probably three times watching this before I realized that he did have cancer and that it was a manifestation of the uh, psychoplasmics. But like you said, it wasn't an outward manifestation. So it's like he got so upset that he basically gave himself cancer. It's a heartbreaking story when you realize that, but it took me so long to realize that I was a total dummy about it. In certain regards, with some of the kind of weird science in his films, Cronenberg winds up being a little bit prescient or like ahead of the curve. And that's definitely a common theory today is that stress can result in cancer because it causes inflammation and opens your body up to different kinds of disease. Obviously, this is a little bit of a different thing, but I just love the way a lot of his Frankenstein type figures have some basis in scientific exploration or in medical exploration that was happening at the time that makes it almost sadder with especially with that side story. Yeah, and when Mike gets kicked out of the clinic, I feel so awful for him, but he is so fucked up. He is just beyond help at that point. I think Raglan has done way more harm than good to this guy unless he was even worse when he came to the clinic. If you see different movies about cults or narratives about cults, it's the same sort of thing where even if it's like a a story about real, like a factual story that you're reading, it seems like so many of these people don't have backstories. Like they don't have fully developed lives. And I think Cronenberg has a great way of tapping into that in a lot of his films where people get sort of sucked up into things like shivers 
But here it's also, you do, even though you don't know anything about these people, you just walk away with that sense that maybe these were people who just needed some therapy. And now, like you said, they're kind of beyond help. It's so sad. Well, and that goes back to the cult aspect too. And I, when you were saying that, I was thinking of the Manson family and how very little we know of the girls' lives before that or how, I mean, it, it, we assume or, you know, maybe it's been reported that they come from broken homes and, um, but I don't think that's true for everybody that ends up in a situation like that. Which also fits with this whole movie about broken homes and divorce and just this cycle of abuse that happens. This is so depressing to talk about. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> to go all the way to the end of the film, it becomes very apparent that that's going to continue. And actually, that question came up with me with the Candace character when Frank discovers her bruises and kind of having that idea in my head that no one's really telling the truth here. I thought, well, maybe she's already doing this to herself. Maybe these are her manifestations of her trauma. She's obviously traumatized throughout the movie. I mean, she has a, a thousand yard stare throughout the film and barely uh, looks anybody in the eye. She seems to have warm feelings for her grandmother and grandfather, but uh, most of the time she's just uh, got a really blank expression on her face. And so I started to think maybe these are already the manifestations, which, of course, we see for real at the end of the film. But, yeah, she's going to be one messed up little kid. Yeah, I've always wondered about her bruises. Are they from her mother? Are they from the broodlings? Are they from Dr. Raglan? Are they, like you said, manifestations of something that's going on? I mean, it's just it's so strange. I mean. We And we never get answers. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why people maybe don't gravitate towards this film as much as they should, because this is a movie that raises more questions than it has answers for. But these questions are so darn interesting. I think he does that a lot, though. And that is definitely one of the things that I love the most about his his work in general is he never makes things easy for you. And especially at the end of the film, it's this sort of situation where I think he takes a standard kind of horror narrative or sort of fighting the monster narrative where you have this protagonist who has to come along and kill whatever the monster is, you know, in this case of man killing his own wife, but it's like, it doesn't even matter because of the way that we're shown pretty clearly that the cycle is still going to continue in Candace because she was already so fucked up by the time the movie started. And that quality of, I don't even want to call it nihilism, because I don't think that's quite it. But I think definitely with things like Dead Ringers and The Fly to a different degree, and definitely also with Rabbit, you have this sense that even though we're sort of following this horror narrative, you reach a certain point at different degrees in these different films where you know that the situation is hopeless, but you're just sort of still there for the ride anyway. And I don't know any other director who can do that so well. One of the things I love about Cronenberg's films are his companies. He's always got these sinister companies and it's kind of the same here. If you want to consider the, 
the clinic that Raglan is running to be a company. I love that it's called Soma Free, this whole idea of body free. Just all of these names that he has. It's it, He always comes up with the best character names and the best company names, and I love all of these things. I'm trying to remember what the name of the elementary school is, because I think that even has another name, you know, another meaning as well. And the, the fact that the family are the Carviths, but Probably my single favorite name in the whole movie is Hal Raglan, which is it's the most 70s thing ever, but it also makes him sound really kind of menacing. Yeah, I was trying to look up what Raglan meant, and the only thing that got was a type of sleeve. That was the other only difference really I saw in the script was that his name was Raskin in the script, which is a little bit harder to say, actually, so I'm glad they changed it. There were a few names in there that were different from from what was what ended up on the film. Raskin is a little bit more Russian, Eastern European sounding, where Raglan just has this kind of weirdly generic North American vibe, if you know what I mean. This movie is so freaking Canadian, it is crazy. <laughs> I mean, there's the the accents that we hear at times. I mean, when you hear from Cindy Hines later on, her Canadian accent is is crazy good. Just to see the houses, to see everybody in their winter clothes, to see all the kids in their snowsuits, it just brought back so many memories of how awful snowsuits were and the whole donning and taking off of the snowsuit when you got to school. Oh, it was horrible. I hated snowsuits and I barely, I, I had such a small walk to school, but my God, would I have to get bundled up in one of these stupid snowsuits with the stupid moon boots that would take your shoe off with it no matter what. It was terrible. Oh, I remember as a kid, I actually, for a couple of years, grew up in Canada and the snow was always above my head. So all of the layers and I'm one of those people, even as a kid, I really love the cold and the snow. So as soon as I put some layers on, I started immediately sweating. And as a kid, it was just like, take off this <laughs> this padding, this armor. I'm dying. It's like Randy in A Christmas Story, where you can't put your arms down. What is it? I can't put my arms well, seeing as how our winters rarely get above 50 degrees or below 50 degrees, I, I do not have this experience. <laughs> I do not have this shared experience with you guys. Just wrap yourself in a comforter one day and <laughs> and then put like trash bags over the top of the comforter. And that's kind of how it felt. When it comes to Raglan, he's only got a few people around him that aren't patients. And he's got the one younger guy that is with him. It always makes me think that there's like some sort of relationship going on there. I could be completely off base though. I just recognize him from other Cronenberg films. So that's all I could think about when I saw him. I was like, oh, he's in the dead zone and, and a couple other movies. He's the killer in the dead zone. And so I, I didn't really even catch any of that, but that's interesting. For some reason, I kept thinking of Art Hindle as that deputy who offs himself with the scissors. But now that you say that, I totally see Raglan's right hand here. The actor's name is Nicholas Campbell, and he was in Fast Company uh, as one of the leads, which I know you haven't watched, Mike. So I've tried. I've tried many times, and I just can't make it through that one. That's eh, all right. I love that this is the first time that Cronenberg is working with Howard Shore. The score for this movie is 
fantastic and sure did it all as kind of an homage to psycho by just using all strings i think he said he had 21 strings in there and not only was he doing this as i think this was his second feature that he was doing and he was very experimental before he was getting into this and one of the things that he did was recorded this all live. He would just have the movie playing and he would record it all, I think, in one big session. So it's kind of wild that he could do that. Yeah. Can you even imagine? No, <laughs> I don't think that's how you're supposed to do it. Don't tell Howard Shore how to live. It is such a good score, though. Again, back to the dead zone. This is one of the films that he didn't score and whenever i watch that movie and i watch that fairly regularly it reminds me of the score from this movie and there's some strings that it's not really the psycho kind of strings but there's one where it will peak and i have no education in music so i don't know what it's called when it goes up but kind of like a sting but not not used as an exclamation point on a scary scene it just kind of rises up and that is prevalent in the dead zone so i always have to remind myself that that is one that he did not do there was an influence there that came from the brood because it's so distinctive they're both so cool i mean they're both just dead winter canadian movies as well so the feel would definitely be there would be very similar to the brood I always have been curious, too. I think that uh, Bassett addresses this in his book, the similarities between The Brood and Don't Look Now or Alice, Sweet Alice, this whole idea of like the little person in the red coat, or in this case, the red snowsuit, or the yellow rain slicker who ends up being the murderer. But I like that this isn't a little person. You know, it is a little person, but really what it's supposed to be is – you know, or it could be a, a nine or 10 year old gymnast. But what it really is supposed to be is this strange, sexless creature. And I think one of my favorite scenes in the film is the autopsy of one of the creatures, just because that usually doesn't happen. You don't usually get to know that much about one of a, one of a creature that is attacking things. Like, you know, like we'll never have an autopsy of creatures too often maybe an alien a xenomorph in in aliens but that's about it you see what we're talking about here is an organism that imitates other life forms and it imitates them perfectly when this thing attacked our dogs it tried to digest them absorb them and in the process shape its own cells to imitate them but I love this um, autopsy scene that they have. And I think that they were doing like filters over it because maybe it didn't look as good as it should have. But then that also adds to this kind of dreamy nature of him remembering it as he's driving to his next location. It really struck me watching it again today, how bizarre the scene is because so many things about it are wrong or unusual. Like, there's no reason that Frank would be allowed in an autopsy like that. And there's also no reason. So like, okay, let's say they discovered the body of this, you know, mutant child thing. Of course, the medical examiner is going to autopsy it. But I think it would be the sort of situation where like in any other movie, the government would get involved and the body would be sort of whisked away or something along those lines. But it's just this like weirdly intimate scene where it's the three of them in the autopsy room. And 
it sort of gave me some like precursor to Dead Ringers vibes because it's in that weird neon pink that I love it. It might be my favorite scene in the movie, but it's so bizarre. That it's on the cover of The Sun the next day. It's like, who let this reporter in <laughs> to take a f- picture of this? And you guys are okay. Obviously, anyone's allowed in there. But you're right. This is normally they would put this in a body bag and whisk it off to Area 54 or whatever. Whatever Canada, Canada, whatever Canada's. <laughs> Have you ever even been to Canada? It's pronounced Canada. And no, I haven't. Whatever Canada's equivalent of Area 50... Is it 54 or 51? 51. 51. 51. Yeah, 220, 221, whatever it takes. I think you're confusing it with Studio 54. There There you go. go. Well, yeah, they would whisk it off to Studio 54, let it go past the velvet rope, and dance the night away. Well, I was going to say that uh, that autopsy scene, I like how... They not only cover it up with that filter, but make make it a memory. And I think that's the explanation for the filter, because the little wax figures that the special effects guy had come up with weren't all that convincing. So two solutions for the one problem that we have, because I don't think it was shot as a flashback, but um, because he had to put that strange filter on it, um, it made sense to do that. And I, I really enjoy that scene too. And the the um, corner seems kind of a little too jovial about it all. Uh, it's got a weird tone to the scene, which it's, which adds it's incredible. <laughs> which adds to the strangeness of it. <laughs> yeah, his tone is so off putting. I think the fr- it's and I think it's one of those things. And we were talking about this a little bit earlier with the character who is looking for a daddy. There's so many weird tonal deliveries in this film that I do think, like to your point about having to watch it a few times before it really struck you, I think it is kind of one of those films where there's so much going on and a lot of it is really subtle that you can miss all of this shit if you just watch it once and you're sort of struck by how creepy the little brood children are and the scene at the end, but there's way more creepy stuff that's happening below the surface. And definitely the coroner who's like, yeah, look at these eye sacks. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> well, those conversations that Samantha Egger has with Oliver Reed, the way that they will shift perspectives throughout those conversations, like Oliver Reed might be her father for five minutes and then suddenly shift to be her mother. Mommy. Yes, Candace. Yes, sweetie. Mommy, you hurt me. You hit me with your fists and, and you scratched me with your nails. You you hurt me. No, I didn't, sweetie. You must have had a bad dream. Mummies don't do that. Mummies don't hurt their own children. They don't. They never do. They never do. Sometimes do. Sometimes, but then they're bad mummies. They're fucked up mummies. Like whose, mommy? Like mine was. Fucked up and bad. No, I'm not, Nola. You're being so unfair, sweetheart. Mummies never do that. Mummies never hurt their own children. Did hurt me. Beat me and you scratched me. You threw me down the stairs. Show me what I did. Don't stop it now, darling. You show me. Show me your anger, Nola. Show it to me. Go all the way through it. 
way through it to the end. Right to the end. It's amazing that he and she can go back and forth. I know that it's all scripted, but it's just so wonderful the way that they will just stop on a dime and suddenly be other people. You know, Nola, I think, is always Nola, but he becomes who she needs him to be. And I just appreciate those scenes so much. It's definitely a far cry from the psychiatrist patient scenes in Exorcist 2, that's for sure. And again, noticing something for the first time after repeated viewings, I realized that after every session, whoever he's been playing is the next one to go. And once the teacher is gone, she kind of wakes up the next morning and is like, oh, I feel so good. I had a wonderful dream that Frank and I were back together, you know, because she's out of the picture now. So it also kind of leads me to believe that in some way she does know what the broodlings are doing. Ruth Mayer, the teacher, is out of the picture now, so I've somehow figured that out, and I have a wonderful dream about getting back together with my with my estranged husband. It's so creepy because, in a way, it sort of parallels how trauma therapy actually works, which is it sort of seeks to move traumatic memories from one area of your brain into another so that they're processed and you're not constantly kind of reliving them or re-remembering them. And it definitely seems like that's kind of what's going on with Nola here is it's like she's tormented by memories or thoughts of a particular person. Once like Raglan helps her to process that the person dies, but it has the sort of intended therapeutic effect. It's just so fucked up. All of the murder weapons that the broodlings use are just common household items. And they're always things that are just so right there handy around the people that they're murdering. You know, the meat tenderizer because they're in the kitchen, the little snow globes because they're on the the end table in the bedroom, the wooden blocks for the teacher. The teacher stuff is the most traumatic thing for me, probably because they're the most blatant the first time they attack, it's in a kitchen, and Candy's in the other room, the grandmother's there alone, the one broodling leaps at her off of like the refrigerator or whatever, it's just really super creepy. And the next time, you know, the husband is alone, but then when it comes to the teacher, it's all right there, all in the, in the daylight. And we've talked before about how scary things can be when the murders are happening in the daylight. That's one of the reasons why I think Halloween is one of the scariest movies are the moments that you see Michael Myers out in the daylight. And here are the broodlings just, Maltzing into school. Okay, we're going to take Candace, put her back back here where she can't see this murder, and then we're going to murder this woman in front of all of these screaming children. Super traumatic. Yeah, that's a, that's a rough scene. I don't know if I'm reading too much into this or kind of imagining it, but it seems to me like the way the murders are presented is that the brood become more mature or more aware or something. Like... To your point about the murder of the grandmother, it feels very kind of spontaneous and chaotic. The thing is just thrashing around in the kitchen. But by the time it gets to the murder of the teacher, it's like they're in disguise and they sneak in and they wait to be alone. Like, oh, it's so creepy. It feels way more like planned and thought out than the earlier murders. 
Well, we should talk about Nola and her performance. I mean, just oh, yeah. Egger. Oh my God. She is incredible. And it, I, I can't remember how many days they said she was on set because like I said, she's in one location, one outfit, like the entire time. Like she, she probably came in and if this took her three days, I would be surprised. That's, that's what uh, all the reports I read said three to four days. She was there. But she has such a strong presence in the film that it's one of those things where I always assume that she's in it more than she actually is. Or like it feels like she's in it more than she is. Yeah, she kind of covers the whole uh, narrative, really. And just those top lit shots of her with that red hair and her big blue eyes, I believe. It's just really striking whenever she's on the screen. It's interesting to see a movie in which someone has a bigger presence than Oliver Reed. And I think that's definitely the case here. Like I say that in a funny way, but also in a serious way. Like he usually I ha- has sort of a way of edging people out because his personality is just so big. But I don't know if it was Cronenberg's direction or I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of it is that. But she just is the most kind of like, you can't not think about her. Part of why I think I always defend this film from people saying, oh, she's just supposed to be this monster and it's really misogynistic. Her performance and her character are so nuanced. Like you feel so sorry for her while at the same time being kind of terrified of her. Yeah. And I think that goes back to your point. Uh, You or Mike mentioned, you know, it doesn't really matter Um, why she's there she has been traumatized and you feel that and you feel it still even when anybody else is talking about her whether they're dismissing it or uh, you know like her mother or the father giving their versions of the story it's still something really awful was happening to this girl when she was younger and even i think frank it doesn't seem like it's just that he's filled with resentment towards her i think he also feels some either not not necessarily pity but uh, maybe some responsibility as well for her being there so uh, she definitely appears like she's just in every scene throughout the movie the one thing that always kind of struck me about their relationship is what we were talking about earlier about how passive he is definitely but he's it sort of seems like and this is totally just a, a unfounded guess. I don't think there's any dialogue that supports this, but this is the vibe that their relationship gives me is that he does feel responsible because he wasn't able to help her. But at the same time, she's just, her issues are so beyond him that he's just kind of given up and that's why she's in there. Yeah. There's a great line from the teacher. Um, and I actually wrote it down. I don't know if this is a perfect quote or anything, but she says, you got married to a woman because of your sanity, hoping it would rub off. Oh, yeah. The old (laughs) fixer-upper. I mean, that kind of gives a negative light to her still and sort of paints him as a savior. But it still kind of uh, struck me as like, uh, yeah. I mean, this is something that happens in relationships. So even though it is this kind of crazy fantasy horror film, the things that make it so horrifying are the elements that are based in reality that everyone can relate to. Maybe it's just that I've seen too much gore or that I've seen too many of Cronenberg's effects, but the scene at the end, I think it's really beautiful, but I don't think it's any scarier than the scene where, you know, he finds all those bruises on Candace's back. No, I don't necessarily find it 
terrifying. I love that she commits to this performance so much. I love when she takes that broodling out of its sack and then licks it clean. I mean, it's just so amazing to, to, to have that level of commitment to the performance. When she lifts up her dress and says, look, is just that image of her with her arms up like that. It reminds me of two things. It reminds me of an angel, but it also reminds me of like an animal that's had its skin flayed off of it. It just seems so striking. I love that. And she is just not afraid at all. You know, she's re it's almost like she's reached this level in her therapy where she's just like, this is me, you know, look at me, look at what I'm doing. And oh, it, it is just incredible. In a way, it reminds me of in Red Dragon, how he wants to go through the becoming and he wants to sort of transform into this other thing. Before me, you were a slug in the sun. You are privy to a great becoming and you recognize nothing. You're an ant in the afterbirth. Is your nature to do one thing correctly? Tremble. But fear is not what you owe me. No lounge. You and the others. You owe me Oh. And that's definitely one of my favorite things about the brood is, you know, you have this scene where everybody's trying to manipulate her for good reason, because they're fucking terrified of the brood. But the fact that the husband goes in and sort of tries to say, uh, you know, I still love you. I want to put our family back together. But she has already like transcended to this whole other level and doesn't give a shit and basically says, like, it would be such a different film if it worked out the way Raglan planned and she said, I'm so glad I want to be with you too, you know, now meet our new family. But instead, she's almost, <laughs> I mean, that would be fucked up too. But it's like, she's almost defiant and says, like, I've become something that you can't even understand. And I love that she's given that sort of like, level of agency after how much pain she's in throughout the entire film. I like that you mentioned Red Dragon because the uplifted arms reminded me of Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs in his robe when he's trying to transform as well. Well, it's funny that you say that because it reminded me of when Hannibal attacks Officer Boyle, the um, Charles Napier character, and you see him pinned up on the, the cell. It reminds me of that as well. I almost said Jim Pembry, but I know that's the guy that had his face cut off. It's Jim Pembry now. Talk to him, damn it. The scariness is so much of that we can recognize the real in this movie. You know, even, you know, kind of joking around about uh, Nola being a fixer-upper. But there are people out there that when they look at their spouse or their boyfriend or girlfriend, they are the kind of people that want to fix them. And there are fixers out there. There are enablers that will enable that behavior to go on. There are fixers who think they can fix the other person. There are caretakers. There are all of these different personality types. And the way that they come together can either be absolutely something beautiful or something completely devastating. And we're just seeing these devastating relationships happening again and again and again in this movie, which is what, to me, makes this such a difficult movie to to watch and to experience because there is so much reality in it. And I'm talking about a movie where little, you know, munchkins run around and, and murder people, but it all feels like it's coming from a very grounded place. Yeah. I think that's 
why I've grown to like it so much. Picking up on that realism, and even without knowing the Cronenberg backstory with his wife, it just sort of started to hit me more, maybe because I'm married and older and, and have a daughter. It, it's, it strikes that personal chord for me and, and how I wonder how ineffectual I would be if, if something uh, were happening to my kid. I'm not talking about ratings of movies. I'm not talking about don't see this movie when you're 17 or 16, but I'm talking about, and I hate to sound this way, I'm talking about maturity levels, and I am talking that when you see this movie when you're 16, 17 years old, and then you see it again when you're 25, 35, 45, etc., it's a much different film. You come to this with more life experience, you're going to empathize with this movie more. So when I'm seeing this movie in my 20s, it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, it's a movie. I understand. Then I see it later on. It's just like, oh, fuck. I know people like this. I've experienced people like this. It really hits you more. I could not agree with that more. I mean, as I said at the beginning of the episode, this has always been a difficult one for me to watch because of my own experiences growing up. And I do think he captures child abuse in a way that is very aware and honest and sensitive. And, you know, I'm grateful that a director is able to do that without it feeling exploitative. But I definitely remember being, you know, 15 or 16 and watching this, and I just hated Frank so much. Like, I wanted Frank to die. And a lot of that is because watching it from that much more immature perspective, when I was still dealing with a lot of my own issues and was still very angry, it's really easy to blame things on the parent who didn't stop the abuse, because they're a safer, more convenient target for that. And I think you see that play out in some of the discussions with Raglan. But watching it now that I'm older, I don't feel the same way because, you know, I've now had adult relationships of my own. And he is inept, but at the same time, I think Cronenberg really makes you aware of the fact that you don't, you probably don't know what you would do in a similar situation. Like, nobody really knows how to handle that. All right, let's go ahead and take a break and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from Cindy Hines, who played little Candace Carveth. After that, we'll hear from Stephen Bissett, author of the Midnight Movies monograph about The Brood. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. You know, the girl from that. The, yes. The, yes. I know. The show exactly on that. God, I know exactly um, who you're talking about. She has the hair. The, the hair was it, it was different. And she has the, 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 the lips. She has the lips with the. Okay, yeah, wait. The, she, no, she was just. Okay. You've seen her a million movies. You know. But, who the, but the one that. We're talking about the exact same person. <laughs> always suck as bad as this but listen to me chris gore and anthony ray bench on the film threat podcast you got questions sometimes we have the answers 
It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the projection booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm always curious when it comes to people that were actors when they were children, as far as when that decision was made, was it your decision and how did you come to it? It was definitely a joint decision. Both my brother and I were discovered at the same time, shopping with my mother in the Bay. And he saw us, had our pictures taken with him. He was the Bay man and uh, it was Bay days. And so he gave my mom his agent's card and she took us in to meet them. And later that week, I had an audition. I believe that was Caress Fabric Softener. And I got the part. And I think like a few weeks later, my brother got a commercial. He didn't enjoy it nearly as much as I did. Um, so, you know, very supportive on that front that if Jeff didn't want to do it, my brother, he didn't have to. But I wanted to keep going with it. So he stopped fairly early on after a few commercials. And I just kept on going with the commercials and television and movies and everything else that went with it. So was this in Toronto? Yes. Okay, is that the Bay store that's at, what, Bloor and Young? Uh, no, actually, um, at the time we were living in Scarborough, so it would have been uh, Cedar Bray Heights in, uh, in Scarborough, which was uh, Morningside and wherever, <laughs> yeah, that Bay there. Tell me about some of those uh, commercials, and how was that for you to uh, be in front of a camera like that? I loved it. It was a lot of fun. You know, I was a, a saucy little thing, too, when I was younger. You know, I can remember sometimes, you know, not necessarily liking the lines that they had for me. So I had suggestions quite often, but I had a lot of fun. Did Lipton Soup, Campbell Soup, Radio Shack, did the Crest Fabric Softener, Kenner Toys, um, an American Express commercial, probably just around the time that I filmed The Brood. We stopped doing the commercials. I was, it was kind of saturated, the market, so to speak. There wasn't too many little blondes, so I tended to stand out a lot in the commercials that were playing. And the agency just thought, you know, take a direction towards television shows and things like that. And 
I think that was the direction we ended up going. How did you get cast? Auditions and just callbacks. And uh, I believe, you know, from what people are saying, it was just I was a, a very similar look to David's daughter. So that was kind of, you know, his in his mindset, he wanted this angelic looking girl for the part for his for the daughter. I met with him. And then the biggest thing was the scream, being able to do the scream and stuff. And I guess I had a good scream. <laughs> How old were you at this point? I was eight. Did you have to have like the teacher on set, those kind of things? No, um, not back then. We did, um, had the teachers drop off work a lot. And then I would do it on set when I had it, or, you know, if I was home, days off, things like that. But yeah, the, the schools were very, very supportive over those years. I was, I was living in Mississauga for, uh, I believe at the time when I was doing the movies. How long was the shoot for the bird? Do you remember? I think it was like five or six weeks, maybe. I don't think it was too, too long. It was bleeping cold. That's all I remember. Seriously, it's the one thing we all talk about, but man, oh man, that was a cold winter. What was your experience like? Fantastic. Like, I have no bad thoughts on anything on that film. Everybody was so great, um, just made it so much fun. It was just, it was wonderful. You know, every time I was on set, it was a joy, absolute joy to be there. I felt like a little princess, that's for sure. And you get to interact with just about everybody that's in it, except... My mother. Except for your mother, yeah. <laughs> I know, isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah, I got to meet her at the rap party. Can you tell me a little bit about how it was to work with so many, I mean, just outstanding actors? I love Art Hendel. I love Oliver Reed. I mean, everybody that's in that film is just so great. Right, but unfortunately, I didn't appreciate it at the time. I was too young, right? So these guys were just people to me, you know, I thought Art was just the most incredible man and I had such a huge crush on him and wished he was my father because he was just awesome. And then Susan Hogan was just, oh my gosh, she was outstanding. I had the, the pleasure of doing a couple of shows with her and commercials actually over the years. They were so kind, you know, everybody was just so kind. It was just so easygoing. Um, I wasn't starstruck because I didn't realize who they were. Now I go, holy crap, man, oh man, Oliver Reed had a gun pointed to me. Woo! <laughs> you know, it's kind of cool, right? You know, I sat across from Christopher Walken. Oh, I, you know, certainly no appreciation at the time, that's for sure. But that's how it is with kids, though, too, right? You know, and well, like I say, Jeepers, it was like, what, 35 years later, and all of a sudden I get called on the brood. I'm like, what, huh, what? <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> I thought those days were long gone. This being a horror movie, did they have to protect you from any of the things that you saw or, or just explain what was happening with things? I think there was some, more so in the school when they were killing the teacher. I'd already been on set and seen quite a bit of stuff, so I was okay with it. But there were some kids that were actually scared. You could hear them truly crying, um, freaking out. So, you know, there was me and a couple of others that were actually working on trying to get them to know it was okay. It was just pretend it wasn't real. It was, but none of it bothered me. The only time that I kind of went, okay, I've had enough was the takes after takes after takes of the ending with the door scene being pounded, you know, all that, that was like physically, that was a toll on my throat. That was a toll, but never had any fear, never had any, you know, 
the girls and I from the gymnastics club used to go around and dip our hands in the blood and go around like you and freaking out our parents. It was great. <laughs> that was that was a lot of fun actually when I finally got to, you know, shoot with some kids my own age for the few days that they came in to do their scenes. It was really nice, you know, because usually it wasn't them. So, you know, Johnny did it or, you know, Felix did it, but the broodlings, for lack of a better term, that take you out of the classroom, the ones that are walking with you, are those the kids? No. Usually it was Johnny and Felix. I spent a lot of time, and it's funny because, I, you know, the more I think of it, man, oh man, I did spend quite a bit of time with those gentlemen, and they were they were so fun, so fun. They were sweet. The gymnastics club mainly was just uh, the big scenes um, where there was a bunch you do the brood shortly after that you do deadline and you're just you're working pretty steady as a kid all these years later you get the call about the brood were there times where you're like 15 20 25 where you're just like hey i was in this thing or did you just kind of put it in your past no it was it was in the past the only time they got brought up was when i was in north bay in 91 art came to Sudbury for ENG, for a talk show. So my mother went and called and told them who I was and wondered if there was some way we could, you know, meet up and stuff like that. And then she surprised me with that arrangement. So I got to see art then, which was really fantastic. And then that literally was the last time I ever really much spoke about it with anybody, per se. You know, it was a life gone by. How did you get the call for the dead zone? Did they call you or did you have to then again audition? David called. Um, he actually initially wanted me to be the girl in the fire with the nurse. That, that, that very first scene, That's that was the scene he wanted me for. And I, I will never forget it because I walked into the room and he went, Cindy, you got big on me. So I, I got too big on him. So then he gave me the other little part that was there. How is it working with David Cronenberg as a director, especially when you're just that young? Oh, he was so awesome. He was great. Gentle, kind, um, you know, are you okay to do this? This going to bother you? Uh, you know, it was, he, was, he was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. What were some of your favorite things to do as an actress? I had a role on Flappers, and it was the um, 1920s roaring kind of show, and I was a bratty little kid. Henry Beck, or Harvey Atkins, where he was my father in it. And it was just so fun because I got to be the biggest brat. You know, I didn't have to be a good girl. I didn't have to be like, because all these roles I'd been playing, you know, Littlest Hobo or the movies that I was doing or things like that. It was, I was always such a good girl. So this one was just great. And the only thing was the makeup and the hair, lots of ringlets and all that kind of stuff, which was, you know, three hours in a hair chair, but I digress. Um, That was a lot of fun to film that one. There was just so, so, so many. You know, I did a special for Book Week one time, and that was just a whole lot of fun. A lot of kids and just games and a good time on set. Lots of good memories. The Lowell's Hobo, a heck of a lot of fun. Doing, uh, got to do two episodes, which was fantastic. King of Kensington. There are so many shows that you're mentioning where I'm just like, Okay, I think that's Canadian. I'm not familiar. Like, Little Sobo, I know, for sure. But King of Kensington, I'm just like, that sounds like a Canadian show. <laughs> yeah, Al, Al Waxman. 
Yeah, like all all great Canadian shows, right? I mean, that's that's what it was, you know. <laughs> Even an Anne Murray special. Oh wow! <laughs> it doesn't get much more Canadian than that. American Christmas Carol with uh, Henry Winkler and Susan Hogan. I was in the choir. Oh, I absolutely love that movie. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was a lot of fun doing that one. Everything, you know, it's just good memories on all of it. I think about walking into the room. It was myself and Megan Follows. <laughs> like truly, that's that's who it was. You know, Megan Follows, Matt and Jenny, and all that. Right? I mean, she's phenomenal, and she's still the most outstanding actress. And she continued on with it, thankfully. But at the time, as kids, it was literally always her and I going back to back. And she ended up getting almost like the good girl kind of roles, and I went to this horror queen thing. <laughs> Everything I did was was horror. Bizarrely enough, with movies, every every movie I did was horror. So Deadline, right? Got hung in Deadline twice. Even Tales of the Haunted, that was a horror. It's great. I didn't even think about that. How all of those roles were horror roles? Yeah, they. Um, there was the star used to call me the horror princess in the in in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, especially after I did uh, Tales of the Haunted. So, but no, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun and I have a lot of fun with, you know, the guys and do whatever I can to try to support, you know, people have done a lot of incredible work on my work. So I have a lot of respect for that. You know, I met the guys from Shockstock in London up at the movie theater because they were doing a drive-in thing and we were sitting there talking and all of a sudden the guy's like, oh my God, your deadline. We just released that. And I'm like, oh, is that why I got my DVD copy? And he's like, oh, I should give you another one. And I'm like, hey, I've never been paid for that movie. <laughs> so we actually did a picture where he's giving me 20 bucks and a copy of the movie. Debt's paid. <laughs> it was so funny. But I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? That's finally coming out on, like, even DVD. I've got a really crappy copy of a VHS, but you know, that's one of those movies that is completely gory off. I'm not even a horror person, but um, it's, it's kind of fun because that's, you know, one that I'm proud of too, you know, just for the roles that I had to play and how difficult it was. So talk about another one with a cast that tales of the haunted is just everybody yes. is somebody. It's crazy. Yeah, Helen Hughes and Michael Starr, Jack Palance. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I got lots of stories. If you ever want to do another call, I got lots of stories on that one. I don't know that Michael Starr would want me sharing some of them, but they were funny nonetheless. We won't name names. He's been on the show before. He's a fantastic guy. He is. Oh, you should ask him if he remembers getting absolutely hammered before he had to deal with the tarantula. until They had to go and find him at the bar. He was so scared of that tarantula, he had to go get hammered <laughs> and then there was here these were two kids playing with the goddamn thing and it's crawling up my arm and we're like Woo -woo. it was so funny so funny to Derek and I the adults not so much <laughs> but he got through the scene <laughs> you know what he was a gentle giant that man was massive to me he seemed so massive to me <laughs> Did you decide to retire or did you go into working on stage or because the last credited thing I see is 83, but again, you're not credited for some of these roles. My mother ended up marrying somebody from a, another area and we moved and she didn't drive. It became very difficult to get to the auditions and stuff. And I was going into high school and I really wanted to finish 
high school. It was my full intention to finish high school and then to look at getting back into it. Um, but then my life just took a, a different turn in my senior year. And I found myself living on my own and working full time and just, you know, trying to make things work. And I wanted to get myself through school, college and stuff. And then it just never worked out to go back to it. And um, I just chose not to go back to it enough starving actors and actresses out there. And at the time it was getting very, very difficult. And I was going into the age where there was very limited stuff back at the time in Canada for, for kids that were, you know, anywhere from 13 to 17, there really wasn't much rules out there. It was just kind of a good time to sit back and enjoy myself. And it was nice. It was nice having school and no interruptions because I missed a lot of grade three, four, five, six, you know, so when did you realize that you had been in a really big cult film? Probably when Chris Alexander reached out to me. <laughs> when it came up that it was coming out on Blu-ray and they were looking to do some behind-the-scenes stuff and uh, reached out to, to me and then Art. And uh, I was like, what? what? Huh? <laughs> All right. That's kind of cool. And then... Then I got asked to a, a Comic-Con, and Art and I did it together, and I could not believe the people that were coming to see me. It was just very moving, very humbling, and it was like, well, that's, wow. I guess I better give give some more weight to to some of these things that I've done, you know? So what are you doing these days? Uh, these days I am selling real estate. I am a realtor. I am raising my son. He's severely disabled with cerebral palsy. Just recently divorced. So just, you know, trying to get myself sorted out there. But I was, uh, running a restaurant in a coffee shop. We built a 6,000 square foot building in our, in our town. And I opened up a 296 seat restaurant. That was what I went to school for wasn't ever my intention to keep it long term. So was able to, you know, sell it off and that kind of stuff, but hoping in the next few years to slow down, put my feet up and uh, rest a little bit. But when I can find the time, I love to volunteer. So I spend a lot of time with the snow film festival and uh, the Berry film festival, theater, volunteering, that kind of stuff. I love it. I love to volunteer. That's my, my favorite thing to do. Ms. Hines, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful talking with you. An absolute pleasure. You as well. Tell me your history of Cronenberg, what you experienced first with him, and how he affected you. When I was a student at Kubert School, there was still a movie theater in downtown Dover, New Jersey. The Kubert School was in Dover, New Jersey. I mentioned that earlier, but I'll remind people. And on Blackwall Street in downtown Dover, there was an amazing movie theater called The Baker. And it was a real old-fashioned uh, neighborhood movie theater. They fell onto ill times later in the 70s. There was like a crack in the back of the building that, that finally – you know, became a real structural hazard and so on. But when I was at the Kubert School, they were still showing uh, double bills every week. And they would rotate the movies like every three or four days, which is how movies used to play. And whoever their booker was, Mike, was bringing in all the American international films, 
many of the New World pictures from Roger Corman's outfit. And so they favored exploitation. You know, that was the meat and potatoes of the baker. And occasionally they could land a studio film, right? Um, I remember seeing Three Days of the Condor there. One of their double bills, the top feature in the double bill was a movie called Rabid. And that was my first exposure to Cronenberg. Now, I had been a regular buyer and then subscriber to Cine Fantastique uh, starting around, God, I think the first issue I lucked into was Golden Voyage of Sinbad. So that would have been like 73. So I've been reading, you know, Cine Fantastique on a regular basis until, since high school. So I was aware of Cronenberg because they had given quite a positive two pages, I recall, review to They Came From Within, which was the American title of Shivers. So I was aware of Cronenberg, but I couldn't see it. It didn't play anywhere in Vermont. I, I never got a chance to see it until after I'd seen Rabbit. So I pay my money. <laughs> I go in, take my theater seat, and Rabbit begins. In the first 20 minutes, I'm calm, but my body is beginning to tremble. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I can articulate it now, but I couldn't have articulated it to you while it was happening or even after I came out of the theater. But it was like intellectually I was engaged with the story. Um, you know, Marilyn Chambers gets in the motorcycle accident. She's instantly in a coma. Uh, they do some sort of elaborate experimental plastic surgery on her. And when she wakes up, she can't eat solid food. She'll throw up if she eats anything or drinks anything. And she has this urge to, you know, get in an intimate space with somebody and embrace them. And Cronenberg starts showing these almost microscopic views of this little penile thing that shoots out of her armpit with a little spike in the end of it. And this is how she feeds. And my body began to tremble. Like, it's like, oh, my God. So intellectually, I'm following the story. But the movie's talking to me on like a cellular level. I'd maybe seen one or two underground films that had had that kind of impact on me. When I say underground films, I'm talking about the classical underground films, Stan Brackage, you know, Ken Anger. So I think I'd seen a couple of underground films, the more abstract ones, like Jordan Belson was doing a lot of abstract stuff that I had felt a real physical reaction to. But I had never felt anything like this. And, you know, Rabbit wasn't that good a movie you know intellectually like it shouldn't have had the impact on me that it did but i was like exhausted by the end of rabbit i had been shaking and trembling through a lot of the movie that was the beginning of it for me you know like i had to see everything this guy had ever made because i had never had that kind of organic physical reaction to any work of cinema i had ever experienced in a movie theater and I was craving more. Loving horror movies really is an addiction, you know. <laughs> this was too high. I wanted more of it. And that was the beginning of my obsession with Cronenberg. The only other film I remember seeing two years later that actually trumped the power of uh, Rabid was the first time I saw uh, David Lynch's Eraserhead, which went to the same place and even deeper, you know, because Eraserhead was the closest thing I'd ever seen to a genuine nightmare in my life. Uh, and I love a race hit. I think it's actually quite funny. But um, so that was the start of it for me with Cronenberg was was uh, seeing Rabbit at the Baker Theater downtown Dover, New Jersey. I, it so fucked me up that I can't even remember who I saw it with because we all went, you know, a couple of a couple of us would go or a bunch of us would go. And I cannot remember who I saw it with. 
And that was a really intense couple of years. You know, I mean, I could tell you who I saw Suspiria with the first time. And that was also at the Baker and a lot of the other films. But man, Rabbit, it just took me out of myself. But it also like went really deep into me on a body level. And that's how Cronenberg functions for me. You know, some of his films always hit me. It doesn't matter how often I see them. Like they continue to hit me on that that body level. So tell me about the first time that you see The Brood and how you decide that you're going to dedicate however long it took you to write this book about The Brood. So as you know from reading the book, I first saw The Brood at a drive-in in the early 80s. I do not remember it playing anywhere near me in driving distance because I was watching for it when I was living in southern Vermont when it came out in 79. I don't think it played in Vermont, but I've never gone looking through microfilm to find out. It popped up at a drive-in on a double bill with a brand new movie, which was Mother's Day. And Mother's Day was a really raw piece of exploitation. You know, it's basically a rape revenge movie uh, sort of combined with a backwoods psycho, you know, hillbilly psycho type movie. I went with my with my first wife, uh, Marlene, whose name at that time was Nancy. She was pretty adventurous about going to the movies. And there were a lot of films we both loved. Like she was a fan of Nicholas Roeg's work as well. But this was a tough double bill for Marlene because Mother's Day really pissed her off. I mean, it is a really crass, going out of its way to offend you movie. And and it pushed all her buttons, uh, especially the rape scenes. And then The Brood starts. And right from the opening sequence of The Brood, where uh, Oliver Reed is on this stage doing this psychotherapy with this poor, vulnerable guy named Mike. Um, who is suffering from having grown up emotionally uh, abused by uh, his parent, his father. I was gripped. This movie had me. I know a lot of people have romantic attachments to drive-ins. I am among them. But drive-ins are not a good way to see a movie, okay? Fog rolls in. If it's a summer night, mosquitoes are a problem. You know, speakers. This is before there was radio sound, so you would hook the speakers to your car windows. So I imagine we missed a lot of the whispered Oliver Reed dialogue <laughs> in The Brood. But, man, the movie really grabbed me. And the finale on The Brood is just unforgettable. There had never been anything like it before. There's been a lot like that tried to be like it since. And we were pretty shocked by it. That was the beginning for me. It was a hard film to see. It played that one time at a drive-in, bottom of the bill. And then I had to wait for video. Uh, it popped up as a rental video cassette at a time when we didn't have a VCR yet. But we had a couple of friends who had a VCR. And one of the friends was fine with our going over and watching TV at their house in the afternoon when they were at work. And I rented The Brood. It popped up as a rental at a local mom and pop store. And I rented it. And I probably watched it three or four times as a rental. And that's when I really fell in love with the complexity of the characters, the depth of the storytelling, and just how fucking powerful a movie it is. Uh, and it never went away. Then I got approached by a gentleman uh, named Neil Snowden, who had launched an imprint in the UK that he called Electric Dreamhouse. I had been doing a lot of writing since the late 80s for a lot of horror film fanzines. My, my, I started with Chaz Ballin and Deep Red. It was really Chaz Ballin that opened the door for me. And then I continued contributing to magazines like my dear friends Tim and Donna Lucas's magazine, Video Watchdog, 
uh, Craig Ledbetter's ETC, which means Eurotrans Cinema, uh, Charles Kilgore's Echo. I mean, I, I and I ended up also writing professionally for magazines like Fangoria and Gorzon. Uh, in the 90s. So Neil was familiar with my work. I had never stopped writing on film. And he wanted me to do a midnight movie monograph, which are these slim black and white volumes that Electric Dreamhouse um, packages for uh, PS Publications, uh, the publisher, um, Pete and Nikki Crowther. And he wanted me to do Carnival of Souls, the Harvey film from 1962. And I really love Carnival of Souls. But I said, you know, Neil, I I'm happy to do a book about Carnival of Souls, but the movie I really want to write about is The Brood. <laughs> and he said, okay, great. Nobody else has mentioned it. You got dibs. Go for it. And it ended up being a two and a half year project. Now, during this time, I was still teaching. I taught for 15 plus years at the Center for Cartoon Studies. That was my main gig, my real passion in life, my bread and butter, my monthly paycheck. And my students came first and I gave my students 200% every year. So The Brood became the book project that I whacked away on, that I worked on piecemeal. I would get concerned that it was getting longer and longer. <laughs> And I would contact Neil and say, I don't know, Neil, this is kind of getting out of hand. And he would say, well, let me look at it. And I would send him the draft of the manuscript. And Neil encouraged me to just keep going. Now, the seed of the book, uh, I have to mention, is I had written uh, a short article that I ran on my blog. I used to do a daily blog called My Rant, M-Y-R-A-N-T, which was a play on the word tyrant, which is the comic book project. That was my uh, my main baby in the 90s. And I, I did, a, I think it was a Halloween or a Halloween season, an October post about some of my favorite horror movies. And I did a post about The Brood uh, that is still archived online at my rant. And then I expanded the piece as an article for uh, a magazine I contribute to regularly called Monster. That's co-edited by um, Tim Paxton and Brian Harris and, and a few other guys. And that article that they ran in Monster, and Monster is spelled with an exclamation point at the end of the word. Uh, it's available on Amazon. Uh, it's a print-on-demand uh, fanzine. That was the nut that I started building the brood book off of. It grew out of that. And it grew over the two and a half years. I put two and a half years in on writing the book. I finally turned it in to Neil uh, New Year's Day of 2018 and then it took another two and a half years for the book to be designed proofed and designed it was a really arduous project and you've seen the book i mean it's a brick it's it's you know 660 pages and it's six or seven times the size of the standard midnight movie monograph um so it was quite a monster for them to take on and all Due credit to Neil Snowden and to the gentleman whose first name was Michael, who was the designer on the book, and to the publishers, Pete and Nicky. They all saw the book through. There were so many times where I just couldn't believe it was actually going to happen because it, it had just grown into such a monstrosity. But when I see a movie, that's how my mind works. I mean, that book on The Brood is the closest thing I can give anyone to how my uh, mind goes clicking when I see or read or listen to something that I really connect with. All these personal and cultural and pop cultural ties become like threads to me, and I have to track every thread. It's really weird. 
it's wonderful, though, too, just the avenues that you go down that I'm not expecting you to even find on the map. And just suddenly we're going down someplace and I'm just like, how did I get here? Okay, yeah, it makes sense how I got here. It's just incredible. The amount of research that you put into this was fantastic. Well, I read all the time and I read all kinds of books. Um, I read more nonfiction than I do fiction these days. I've always been a really curious guy. You know, I was one of those kids that when I went outdoors, I had to turn over every rock and roll over every log. I wanted to see what was under it. And uh, and that's just how I'm wired. I was one of those weird kids with a microscope, you know, that would come home with a little baggie or a little jar of pond water to look at what was in the water. And, and that, that really drives my approach to writing about film, writing about graphic novels, writing about comics. And yeah, I mean, the the, the Tywire Act and doing a book like the Midnight Movie Monograph on the Brood is, uh, I do have a point that I'm going to bring you around to, but you as a reader have to trust me that I am going to bring you back to the Brood. <laughs> Some of those rabbit holes are really deep, but the depth of those rabbit holes is why the Brood is so important to me. And, and it really became urgent to me as I worked on the book to try to illuminate every nook and cranny and it's not with you know crazy academic or auteur theory or anything it's that i see the pop culture as a way that creative people reflect and express what the world is to them and it's a really complex thing and i could write a book like that about many movies and not just the ones i love i could go down those rabbit holes even with films that i really loathe because what excites me and what excites me as a storyteller with the work that I've done and been able to do over the years, you know, projects like Swamp Thing and individual comic stories and, and projects like Tyrant, I'm aware of, of the aquifers that really drive us as, as storytellers, you know, why we want to tell these stories and why sometimes it's almost a survival imperative to tell a story. And I definitely feel like The Brood was a story David Cronenberg had to fucking tell that story had to come out and it was a matter of life and death on a you know on a, in a certain way that he get it out there and i feel it only fair that i give it that kind of attention as a viewer i know that's unusual and it goes way beyond most people go to a movie just to be entertained for 90 minutes to me this is one of the the wires that feeds us into the universe and and i want to explore that and I want to understand it. I mean, that's really what drove a book like this is I want to understand why it hit me as hard as it did in 1981 and why it still hits in 2020. What is your process? Like, are you outlining these things or are, are, are these things coming to you? And then you're just like, oh, this is the next avenue I'm going to turn down. I did start with a with an outline. I didn't even have a list. I, I started when I'm writing a, a fiction story. Okay, uh, I'll use an example. I, I wrote a, a fiction story called Copper for a book that Chris Golden edited called The New Dead that came out a number of years ago. And when I write a, a piece of fiction, uh, my methodology is I write what I think is the first paragraph. I write what I think is the last paragraph. And I write whatever is most vivid to me about the middle or what I think is the middle of the story. And then I work toward each of those points 
So it grows organically. Uh, so I don't really have a linear outline when I'm going to write a, a short story or do a comic project. But I set a goalpost for myself, and I know where my beginning point is. And I always will try to picture, okay, what's halfway between where I am now and where I think I'm going? And I don't cling to that because when you take a journey as a storyteller, there's a certain point where the story starts to steer you. It's a real magic point where the characters, I mean, everyone's heard the cliche of writers saying that, you know, characters begin to write themselves. It is true. There are points you'll reach as a storyteller where the work begins to drive you and the work begins to shape itself, it feels like. And it's not that you just have become like this automaton, you know, meat puppet <laughs> uh, hitting the keys and getting it down. But there is a real imperative that the work builds of its own accord. And the same is true for me when I'm doing nonfiction. And uh, the Brood book came about that way. So I was pretty sure I knew where I was starting. I had read an interview with Cronenberg where he described that dream that I that I quote right at the beginning of the book, you know, very early in his career. He said he had this dream where he was in a movie theater. What was happening on the screen was was having this this bizarre, powerful effect on anybody in the theater. When the lights came up at the end, they were all older. And I knew that was my start point because that's what that's what my life has been. <laughs> I saw Rabbit had this intense experience when I was like, what was I, 21, 22? And, and now I'm 65, and I'm still, you know, fucked up by all this shit that Cronenberg does. So that dream was, was a start point. I knew roughly where the middle of the book was going to be, which would be when I finally tipped the hand to the reader about what the end of the movie is. Because it's really important to me in the book at the beginning that we don't give away where the film was going. I do want to be kind to the readers who haven't seen the film. And then at a certain point, it's like, you know what? This is a 660-page book about this movie. Fuck it. Now we're going there. <laughs> and I knew where I was going with the end of the book, which is how I saw the brood permeate so much of our pop culture sense and inform aspects of Cronenberg's work, even though... It was not a particularly successful film. A lot of the things that shape our culture are not the big blockbusters. Everybody acts like they are, but a little bizarre midnight movie like El Topo or Eraserhead had a much greater impact on our culture than, say, Titanic did. So that, that was my end point. I knew I was going to arrive at, okay, at the end of the book, I'm going to sort of try to trace the wake of the brood. And everything between that, the process becomes where are the connections that I recognize? What are the connections that emerge out of the process of writing? And what are the accidental connections that are made? For instance, there's a whole chapter that I never thought I was going to write, Mike. There's actually two chapters about uh, the metaphysical and spiritual aspect of the culture that fed the brood, where I get into things like topas and and uh, spiritual projection and poltergeist activity and ghosts. And that's all shit that Cronenberg rejects, right? That is not part of his personality or makeup. But when you tell a story about a woman whose emotions are so strong that she can physically manifest her rage in the form of a brood of creatures that act on her emotional impulses, that is a narrative expression of some very ancient spiritual beliefs that tie in with aspects of exotic to Western culture, Asia-based religious beliefs, and so on. And I had to go there. 
you know, I had to go there. And those were the kind of accidents that would emerge that uh, I didn't think I was going to be pursuing. And then once I began to pursue it, I recognized all sorts of connections. Case in point, I never thought that I would be referring to M.R. James while I was writing about David Cronenberg. And yet, as I got into it, I realized that M.R. James's short story, The Ash Tree, is a prototype for David Cronenberg's The Brood, where the rage of an executed witch manifests itself in this killer ash tree. And these little cat-sized spider parasites are slithering in the window and feeding on the cursed family male members because their bedroom is right outside of where the ash tree is. That's the brood, prototype for the brood. And I never would have thought of it. And it wasn't a conscious, if I had had a prepared outline, it wouldn't have been on the outline. But once I got into following some of those threads that got me thinking about, oh, poltergeist activities often associated with preteens or, or young kids, usually young females, I had to go there because, again, the brood is a more pragmatic, tangible, science fiction-based expression of that concept. And once I went down that rabbit hole, there was M.R. James and the ash tree. And I went there. That's my process. I, I think my rambling might have given you some insights into how ramshackle it is. And then the challenge becomes in the writing, okay, how do I not lose the reader? You know, how do I connect these threads and then bring us back around to the center focus, which is the brute? You said there were two chapters that you weren't expecting to write. Was the other one the poltergeist one? I mentioned earlier about accidents. My good friend Joe Citro, Joe Citro is a, a Vermont folklorist and novelist. And Joe gifted me a book, which is referenced in uh, the Brood book. I quote from it extensively and footnote it, uh, which was about a woman who was a very famous spiritualist in Boston at the end of the 19th century. And this is a book I didn't know existed. It was a case history I wasn't interested in or had no you know, predilection or prior knowledge of. But Joe read the book and said, Steve, you got to read this. This is a great book. And Joe didn't know I was working on the brood book. I don't think he would have loaned it to me even if he'd known I was working on the brood book, because that's not the connection any of us made. But as I read the book, the bizarre orientation that 19th century males had, the female anatomy spoke volumes to me about the accusations of misogyny that were being leveled against Cronenberg, particularly for the brood. And that mystical aspect of the brood that we still see the female body as enough of a projection space that it is believable in the context of the horror narrative of the brood that a woman could give externalized birth to these rage babies. And there's the seed of it in this real life case history of a female spiritualist who was very popular as a psychic and medium in the Boston area at the end of the 1800s. As I was reading the book, I was beginning to reference pages and bookmark the book like, okay, I got to quote this when I get to this part of the brood. Sure. That's something I had no prior knowledge of. I never would have gone looking for. It was just literally handed to me as a gift. And as, as I was reading it, I went, oh, my God, look at this. Another connection was I didn't know there was a serial called The Mysteries of Myra. And I don't remember how I stumbled on it. It may have been during one of my online searches for thought projection, and I find out that there's a serial made in Upper New York State, about two hours driving distance, three hours driving distance from where I live, called The Mysteries of Myra. 
And indeed, it's probably the first cinematic incarnation of a thought creature. It's about this group of Aleister Crowley-like magicians, and collectively they project their thoughts and create this thought monster that's actually a character in the film. And I was like, oh, my God, I got to mention this. And then I found out that there's this group of film scholars and serial fans who had restored the only remaining elements of the Mysteries of Myra and that they not only had made it available from their website on DVD, but you could also buy a hardcover book they had put out that was a novelization of the complete serial. Well, of course, I had to get this, Mike. (laughs) And, you know, this is like a lost piece of horror film history that I never would have found or been aware of if I hadn't been working on the Brood book. I really like what you did with tying the brood in with Shulovsky and possession. I found that very, very clever. Yeah, and it's not just clever. You know, I've seen in my lifetime as a cartoonist, I've seen first and second hand how ideas will sometimes bubble up in the hands of multiple people who are in no way aware of each other's work. My friend Rick Veach, who is one of the hardest working creative people I've ever known in my life. Like Rick has a work ethic that, you know, would pulverize mountains into, into dust (laughs) and has never missed a deadline. And Rick was doing an original comic serialized graphic novel for Marvel in the pages of Epic Illustrated, which was a newsstand magazine that Marvel published back in the eighties. And it was their competitor to heavy metal. Okay. So it was adult comics. And Rick was doing uh, a serial called Abraxas and the Earthman. And uh, it was sort of Rick's take on Herman Melville's Moby Dick, except in space. (laughs) And Rick had, you know, come up with this idea of these like space whales, you know, these these uh, cetaceans that live in outer space and can move between planets and the cosmos and so on. It's this real fantasy tapestry he was working with. Now, he was working six months ahead, Mike. He turned in his first chapter, and it wasn't going to see print until six months later. That's how far ahead Rick was ahead of schedule. And to an editor like Archie Goodwin, editor of Epic Illustrated, a creator like Rick Beach is a godsend. Because usually you're struggling to get the work from cartoonists. Here's Rick Beach six months ahead. Rick's first chapter comes out. One of the big splashes in the first chapter is the revelation of the bright scarlet you know, surrogate Moby Dick, the the space whale. That same month, heavy metal prints a space whale story from Europe and another adult comic magazine that was a a spinoff of, uh, was, was trying to rip off heavy metal, a magazine called Gasm, also published a space whale story. They all were on the newsstands the same week. I saw that firsthand. I was buying all comics as they were coming out new. And I brought the other two back and said, Rick, <laughs> you know, and I had seen when Rick was working his pages, I knew he wasn't aware of those other stories and there's no way the other cartoonists were aware of his work. And there they were, they were all in the newsstand the same week. So I'd seen how that happened. That to me is the fascination of a film like possession in part, according to all accounts, the writer director of possession was not a Cronenberg fan, had no love for Cronenberg's work. And it turned out when I contacted Daniel White, who's the world's foremost scholar on that filmmaker in the English language. Anyway, he had evidence 
that the director had been working on the first draft of the screenplay as far back as 1975, before Cronenberg had even gotten his first mainstream feature film that came from within, a.k.a. Shivers, into theaters. So I knew it wasn't a case of Cronenberg imitating the director of Possession, and I knew it was a case of Possession not being an imitation of The Brood, and yet there are so many parallels. And I wasn't being clever tracking those parallels. I, as a storyteller, am fascinated by you can give two creators the same template, and they are going to take it in two different directions. And the commonalities between those two films, which I list in the book, you know, they both have a marriage breakdown. They both have a husband who's essentially forced to become a single parent taking care of their offspring, a son in possession, a daughter in the brood. They both have a woman who is materializing some emotional, primal, emotional, uh, what can I even call it, fixation <laughs> into a tangible physical form, which becomes a monster or a group of monsters in the, group, in the case of the brood. They also have these weird parallels about like the school teacher, the role that the school teacher plays in the story. But it's also telling to me that they go in two completely different directions altogether. I think that's important. And I also think it's fascinating and incredible. And it's part of why I dedicated an entire chapter to possession. I was also fascinated kind of off the, the brood track, but also talking about the uh, synchronicity of ideas. I was glad that you addressed the whole idea of High Rise by Ballard and Shivers by Cronenberg and that those were independent of one another, but again, so similar. It was important to me to track the publishing history of Ballard's novel and to track what we have documented in uh, the public record of the roots of what became Shivers when it was originally scripted. I think it was called Invasion of the Blood Parasites. It was a really lurid title. And there's no way that Canadian Cronenberg would have had any connection with uh, Ballard where he was writing and vice versa. You know, Cronenberg was a completely unknown quantity publicly unless you were Canadian or paying attention to the Canadian underground cinema where Crimes of the Future and Stereo had emerged. The parallels between High Rise and Shivers are fascinating, but they also diverge in such key ways uh, it's also telling to me, and I think I say I did say it in the book, that when the film version of uh, High Rise came out, Shivers is a much better movie. <laughs> and I did get to see uh, High Rise in a uh, jam-packed movie house at the Green Mountain Film Festival up in Montpellier, Vermont, at the Savoy. So I saw it with a full audience. And I have also shown Shivers to my uh, students. And I have seen the audience reaction. I mean, Shivers still is a gut punch of a movie. And High Rise didn't even come close. So, you know, I'd often seen that connection. And even I'm sure you've seen it, too, Mike, even accusations of one or the other ripping off uh, the other creator. And that's just not the case. Those they came out around the same time and they were a case of completely independent uh, creative works um, where the creators were in no way aware of what the other creator was doing. Right. It's a lot easier to believe that somebody's ripping somebody other off rather than that a space whale shows up three times. Yeah, exactly. And we've all seen seasons where, God, I, I still remember because I was a manager of a video store at the time, you know, the year that Abyss came out, there were suddenly all these underwater monster movies, <laughs> Lords of the Deep and and uh, and so on. And uh, 
you know, as a fan of films that, you know, a lot of times film productions take two, three, four, five years of development hell before there's any chance of them being made. And it's completely serendipitous sometimes that they emerge at the same time. But there are, of course, cases of, you know, films that were rushed out the door very quickly to rip off something that was popular. And we could both pinpoint plenty of examples of that as well. But that's certainly the case of any. Cronenberg's never been motivated by anything that had to do with trying to hitch his coattails to some, you know, popular object that was sifting through the pop culture. If anything, quite the contrary. At the same time, though, it was also important to me to lay out. I don't think I'd ever read. Uh, it, I, it may exist out there, and, I, and if someone's aware of it, please steer me to it. I think I—I I don't think I'd ever read uh, an assessment, a chronology, a, a cartography of parasitic science fiction. Uh, as I argue in the book, I don't even—I'm not—I'm certainly not saying that Cronenberg, ipso facto, read all this old science fiction and so did this work. It's just that these things are out there in the pop culture, and whether we're cognizant of them or not, they do feed our own creative work if you're a creative individual. And sometimes it feeds your work because you're just tapping into those same aquifers, and sometimes it feeds your work because you read or saw or experienced some variation on the theme in something that was closer to your own life in informative years as a child or teenager or whatever. It was interesting to me when I when I dug into as much as I could lay hands on about Milton Cronenberg, David Cronenberg's father. When I found that one artifact, that one publication where his father had had a conversation with John Campbell, the uh, science fiction uh, author and, and editor who basically reinvented uh, North American science fiction at a really key time. He was the author of Who Goes There, which was adapted into the films The Thing from Another World and John Carpenter's The Thing that I could find an artifact where David Cronenberg's father had spoken to John Campbell. It's like, okay, that's a connection worth mentioning to the reader because again, I'm not arguing there's a cause and effect, but I know Campbell's work was in their household and we do have some physical evidence of that. And, and that interests me. Of course, Cronenberg, I will also point out, you know, Cronenberg argued for years that alien had taken a lot of its, elements from shivers and in a way he's right but part of why i track parasitic science fiction before getting into a deeper discussion of cronenberg's work and particularly the brood and the brood is is not associated with parasitic science fiction directly is uh, i did want to present an argument against what cronenberg was claiming you know dan o'bannon one of the two screenwriters with Ron Chousset of, of what became Alien in 1979 was very open about, I stole from everywhere. And I did want to point out that there were precursors to the kind of work that Cronenberg did. The big difference is Cronenberg is the first filmmaker who took the side of the parasite. And I think that's why his work uh, is both so offensive to so many people, not just the critics who originally knee-jerk rejected his his films, but also why his work is so central to the evolution of the horror genre, because that was a new thought. That was a new orientation to storytelling, and nobody had really done it before Cronenberg. And it's part of what made Rabbit so disturbing to me, and part of why it spoke to my body so directly. You know, it's like... This is a whole new approach to storytelling. Yeah, let's take the side of the non-human organism 
How does that change everything? And that's fascinating to me. So what are you working on these days? Are you still teaching? I just retired from teaching. I have been teaching since uh, the summer of 2005 at the Center for Cartoon Studies. Uh, right now, I'm working on a number of nonfiction projects. Uh, back in 2017, I put out the first volume of a book series I'm working on called Cryptid Cinema. It's about films that involve cryptids. Cryptids are creatures that may exist but have not been uh, officially recognized or identified by science. So the popular versions would be, you know, sea serpents, lake monsters, the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the Yeti. You know, those are popular cryptids. We don't have a specimen of any of those, so they are not considered actual zoological uh, specimens. But people keep seeing them and people keep reporting them. My interest is not so much in cryptozoology, even though it fascinates me and I've read cryptozoology just about all my life. I'm more interested in the storytelling forms that grew up around cryptids. My fascination is two-tier, Mike. Uh, number one, cryptid cinema embraces movies about real-world cryptids. So movies about, you know, sea serpents, lake monsters, uh, the Yeti, Sasquatch, those fit. But just as uh, much an aspect of cryptid cinema are the films that propose a fictional cryptid. And in the context of the narrative, we are to take them as a reality. Uh, Neo-dinosaurs, living dinosaurs in the lost world. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's 1912 novel, the 1925 film version, and all the imitations. King Kong, Godzilla. These are all cryptid cinema artifacts as well. And um, some of my all-time favorite movie monsters, like The Gill Man, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, fit the bill as well. My interest is in, I don't care whether the film is based on a supposedly real-world cryptid or not, the storytelling forms that have evolved around the idea of a cryptid have a very codified approach to what they're doing. They seem to be obsessed with hitting the same bases, whether they're cognizant of it or not. And I'm fascinated with that as a genre. And with the exception of uh, David Coleman's um, The Bigfoot Filmography, a wonderful giant book that, that David wrote and that uh, McFarland Press published, nobody's really taken a hard look at cryptid cinema as a genre. So that's my current sort of obsession, if you will. The first book came out in November of 2017. Your listeners can buy it from Amazon.com. And it's a real scattershot book. I just had fun with it. And I kind of like lay out some of the basics of what I see as cryptid cinema and dedicate chapters to the far reaches of it. There's a number of films in there that some people, you know, really have an issue with my including, including movies like Equinox, the movie from 1970. The second book, which is about to come out, is dedicated entirely to The Legend of Boggy Creek, the 1972 independent film that was shot in uh, Texarkana and parts of Arkansas by a writer-director named Charles B. Pierce. And I'm doing an entire book on The Legend of Boggy Creek because that's the movie that changed the genre forever. Prior to The Legend of Boggy Creek, every cryptid cinema film was about you had to go somewhere to find these exotic creatures. Charles Pierce put the first popular film out there that said, <clears throat> you don't have to be a scientist or explorer. If you look out your back window and you live in Texarkana, the folk monster could be in your backyard. <laughs> and that changed everything. 
everything. And people aren't even aware of it. And we also fall into that trap of, you know, when I was working on the brood book, I can't tell you how many times people would say to me, why aren't you writing about a different movie? You know, it's like the brood didn't matter much to them. Legend of Boggy Creek was a huge hit. I mean, that played almost nonstop theatrically and at drive-ins in America from 1972 until 1976. That is a long run for any independent movie. Four years. And now people will watch it if they've heard of it and they go, eh, that's not so much, you know. But now we've had how many years of cable TV shows about, you know, every week searching for Bigfoot and asshats going out in the woods with, you know, all their equipment looking for Sasquatch and stuff. You know, now it's become such a part of our pop culture that it seems common that we forget it still started somewhere. And what Charles Pierce did was pretty revolutionary in 1972. So I'm working on that book, and I'm also writing at the same time the third volume of Cryptid Cinema, which is the book I probably should have written first, Mike, <laughs> which is the chronological history of cryptid cinema up to 1972. So I'm tracking all the threads from the 1890s and, you know, Georges Millier and a lot of early cinema up to 1972. And I'm stopping in 72 because after The Legend of Boggy Creek, the floodgates were open. And I feel like David Coleman's already written the book about what came after Boggy Creek, which was the big folk filmography that I mentioned earlier. And I'm also working on some comics projects. It's my goal to um, get back to work on my dinosaur comic, Tyrant, which um, I launched in 1994. And I managed to get about four issues out before the direct sale market collapsed and imploded. And it's my hope to get back to that. Mr. Bissett, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. I hope I didn't go on too long, Mike. When you come face to face with the brood, you may think they're human. They're not. You may think they're harmless and easy to control. You're wrong. Don't let the brood anywhere near you, or you'll know how it feels to be totally terrified. Once they get their hands on you, you're better off dead. The brood, they're waiting for you. Rated R, restricted. Under 17, not admitted without parent. All right, we're back and we're talking about The Brood. I want to thank Ms. Hines and Mr. Bissett again for their time. You can hear more of the conversation with Mr. Bissett as a separate supplemental episode. And once again, I do want to remind people that this is kind of the second part of a conversation. So go over to wakeupheavy.com and listen to the rest of this uh, where you can hear us talk about shivers. And kind of to that end, I wanted to talk to you two about how we see The Brood fitting into the overall world of Cronenberg. Cronenberg's had one of the most fascinating careers, especially with the way that he is able to change genres, but yet still bring his sensibilities to all of these different things. Like, it's interesting that we're talking about Raglan and psychiatry, psychology in this, and then we have the whole movie uh, that he did about Jung and Freud, you know, like, what, 30 years later. So he's still trucking in the same stuff, but he's doing it in a much different way. I 
have many, many thoughts on this because as I've talked to you about, uh, I think probably in other episodes before I've mentioned this, I'm writing a book on rabid. So I spend most of my time lately thinking about how things fit into his early career. But in terms of how does the brood fit into his career as a whole, a super fascinating double feature that I strongly recommend people to check out if they're interested is the brood and maps to the stars, which have all of these weird parallels in terms of this kind of abusive mother figure and the crazy sort of guru psychiatrist and the family dynamics. And so I think these are themes that he's continued to explore in different ways for decades now. I still need to watch a lot of his later films. I tried to start Cosmopolis last night and didn't last very long. And Maps to the Stars, I just didn't get to, but now I'm really curious. Oh, you need to, especially now that you have, you know, gone through a couple months of watching The Brood repeatedly. And reading a 700-page book about it. I think the interesting thing about it is the sort of treatment of Nola's character. I mean, it has all of his main character types from the period, like the inept male protagonist and the manipulative scientist and some sort of monstrous character, often a woman, some sort of character going through a really radical transformation. It's like, it's all there, but for some reason in the brood feels different to me. And the tone of it reminds me a lot more of later things like maps of the stars. When I think that it's, his first fully realized idea. And part of that is maturity, but in reading the Beset book and in reading the Shivers monograph by Luke Aspel, the whole point of Shivers was to get an exploitation film out and, and make money and, and make a life as a, a film director. And it seems like rabid suffered from maybe a quick turnaround. And I know that some stuff from the script was left out that would have, would have made it make a little more sense. But I think just because this was so personal, it seems like it has a little bit more meat to it. And that definitely continues through the later films. And maybe it was just a matter of having more time to do it, more money to get it made bigger names. I mean, Oliver Reed and Samantha Eger have played such a huge role in this just with their heft, but it seems like it sort of bridges the gap between early exploitation and later more cerebral films. And that's with just my limited, you know, I stop at around uh, crash as far as having kept up with most of Cronenberg's output. I mean, psychiatry is something that shows up again and again, even in his later films, even after he sort of, I I feel like you reach a turning point in the eighties with things like Videodrome and the fly where the inept male protagonist becomes something different. Like in the case of the fly, the inept male protagonist and the manipulative scientist are basically one and the same. And that's also the case with dead ringers. So it's fascinating to me how that transformation kind of works from the brood on. But I don't know if I think Rabid feels less personal, but I also am now to the point that I think you're in 
with the brood where I've just watched rabid so many times and I've spent so much time thinking about it that it's become kind of a different thing to me than it was when I first saw it. I mean, it's definitely one of my favorite Cronenberg movies, but yeah, I, I don't think I've, <laughs> I've reached a, um, super critical, mass. yeah, super critical, <laughs> uh, theories about it. So I waver between shivers and rabid and now kind of the brood is, is definitely top spot Cronenberg. It's fascinating how your perspective on a film changes when you either watch it a lot of times or specifically if you watch it and start researching it because you're going to write about it or do a podcast that like, to me, it always becomes like, I always wind up so much more attached to those films, like versus films that I just watch for fun. I, I don't know if you guys have the same issue. It's almost like you want to put them on a special place on the shelf and be like, okay, I've talked about this movie. I, I'm very intimate with this movie. It's like intimate is probably the best word, especially because it can have so many meanings with it. It's, it is interesting when I look at Cronenberg's filmography, I remember loving Dead Ringers, but I've only seen that movie once. I saw M. Butterfly years ago on a shitty VHS tape that was like left at my friend's house when, when he moved into this place. There were a bunch of VHS tapes and we we're going through them and I was just like, well, I've never seen M. Butterfly. Let's watch that. But then it's like, you know, Existence, I've watched a bunch, especially for the show. I was so disillusioned by Spider that the movies afterwards, really, it took me forever to see A History of Violence. It took me forever to see Eastern Promises. And then I stopped there. I haven't seen anything past that. So A Dangerous Method, Cosmopolis, and Maps of the Stars, I've never seen. Okay, you could have the most miserable family marathon with Cronenberg's films alone. If you start with the brood, if you go to, you could maybe include dead ringers in this since they're brothers, but I don't think it totally counts since it's not like a husband and wife situation, but Eastern promises and history of violence, similar family vibe, but you seriously maps to the stars. I feel like I'm constantly telling people they need to watch this. And they're like, well, I didn't like cosmopolis. I'm like, it's a different movie. Come on. Just trust, trust the Cronenberg. I'm going to watch it tomorrow. I was so burned by spider. I still want to watch spider as well, because I really enjoyed the book, you know, 25, 30 years ago. So I don't know. I just, I, I don't know why I skipped that one. And in butterfly, I think I skipped because I had seen, it's so much when I was in London in 1990, I think it was being performed at the time over there and it was just ubiquitous. And everywhere I went, there was something about in butterfly and I just had zero interest in the play and I never wanted to see the movie. So, which is probably not a good reason to not watch a movie, but it's my own personal reason. Yeah. <laughs> I did want to bring up one movie that I've briefly talked about with you, but it sort of came up all at the same time that I was reading through the Bissette book and looking at the extras from the Blu-rays that you sent over. And I think it was the Cindy Hines, one of the Cindy Hines interviews on those extras where she mentioned that short, like right after this, she was in a movie called Deadline. And I was like, oh, this is, this is one of those movies that's on my watch list and has been for years now. And I did my little search like I always do for those movies, and it's never, they're never streaming anywhere. But I did find it on a certain website and started watching it that evening and, and had to stop and, and go to sleep. And then the next day, as I was reading through the Bissette book, it was brought up in there 
but it's a really strange Canadian film about a Stephen King-like character going through a similar kind of uh, marital distress, and it's really strange and not nearly as good as The Brood, but I saw in Bissett's book that he made the connection not only to Stephen King, but to David Cronenberg because of his controversial subject matter and, you know, getting funds from the CFDC and all these kind of things. And so that's sort of briefly mentioned in the movie, but it's a really, really strange little film from, I think, 1980 that uh, people should check out. One of the boutique uh, Blu-ray companies has released it recently, so... I think Vinegar Syndrome put it out, right? It, it's a trip. It's really weird, and there are some really interesting set set pieces that have some, for the time, really great special effects. That sounds awesome. I, I have it, actually, from them, but I still haven't watched it. So I will, if you watch Maps of the Stars, <laughs> I will watch Deadline. <laughs> I will watch it tomorrow, I swear. Well, I want to thank my co-hosts for this special episode, Sam and Mark. So, Mark, what is happening in your world, sir? Well, the Shivers episode that we have... Uh, mentioned a number of times throughout should be available and you can see that at wakeupheavy.com um, I believe the show is on iTunes and just about everywhere else you can download podcasts including the new podcast service from Amazon Music so check it out there and Mike will probably have it up on his site as well and we also did the Antenna episode which I believe is out or should be out it will be out by the time this is out and check that out and uh yeah wakeupheavy.com is the place to go or soundcloud backslash or is that forward slash slash heavy that's my host so you can find all of the episodes there and itunes and everywhere else I work in the internet business, and I heard somebody say backslash when they meant forward slash the other day, and it was like a dagger to my heart. <laughs> yeah, like which, nails on a chalkboard. Which one is it? Oof. I never remember. It's a forward Fall slash. Okay. Yeah. All I can think of is Conan O'Brien using the little picture of slash whenever he would promote Conan.com or whatever, slash whatever the, uh, you know, afterward I was. I do remember <laughs> that. I had to break that tutorial out for somebody. So, And Sam, what is happening in your world? I'm still doing, uh, you know, different commentaries that are coming out, but I'm always the worst at remembering once I'm put on the spot. But one thing that I do want to promote is this great British serial killer film from the early 70s called I Start Counting that is coming out on Blu-ray really for the first time from this new company called Fun City. And they are sort of partnered with Vinegar Syndrome, so you should definitely check that out. I also, because Mike inspired me to get off my ass, decided to start working on my rabid book again. And so, assuming I don't get distracted by other projects, hopefully that will be out next year. Hopefully. Well, I, I will definitely buy a copy. Is it going to be six, seven hundred pages long? Uh, it is not. I say that now, but... I'd rather not. I'm trying for it not to be that long. I'm trying for it to be a respectable length. 
Again, I want to remind folks that this is the second of two episodes. You can hear Mark and I talk about David Cronenberg's shivers either at his site, www.wakeupheavy.com, and I'll also be posting that episode over at the Projection Booth site, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode as well. You'll also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.